Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice hey, everybody, what's going on? Hey, it's book club. We're doing it at the beginning of the month because we've got a very uh, special guest and I'm going to let Diana, she's going to uh, get host us tonight, but we're, we're really pumped to have Kat Armas. And um, I've got a quote from you here just to like kick us off for the night. It says, this is a really great one. You've got lots of good ones. All you got to do is just like Google her name and then like read, read wonderful things and post them. But I always wonder why folks are so quick to think that speaking out against things like sexism, racism, abuse, homophobia, ableism, and such is more divisive than actually being sexist, racist, abusive, homophobic, and ableist. So here we are, October. We've had already an exciting month. We delivered a pope, a, a, a cross to the pope. I don't know if you saw that, Cap, but our, our friend Archbishop Justin delivered a cross made from the barrel of a gun to Pope Francis. So that was pretty great. Um, we celebrated Francis of Assisi this week. Um, we're also uh, celebrating Therese of Lisieux. And, uh, you know, there's it's an exciting month. Um, there are sadly a few executions that are scheduled. Several of them have been uh, postponed. Thank the Lord. We're trying to stop all of them. But every execution that goes forward, we will be hosting a vigil with our friends at Death Penalty Action. Uh, we've also got, you know, all kinds of other uh, movement work that's going on. So make sure you sign up for our wake ups and, uh, you know, our, our newsletters and everything if you're not already a part of RLC. But I want to get out of the way because I'm so pumped for our book club tonight. We've been doing these usually at the end of the month, but we could get Kat tonight. So we took it. So uh, if you don't have the book, you're going to want to get it after tonight. Um, we're going to hear about her new book, but she's also written uh, another really beautiful book that's just making its rounds everywhere I go. I see it. So I'm so glad to just listen in and I will pass it to you, Diana, to introduce Kat and to get us going. So thank you. Thanks, Kat, for joining us. Yes. And everybody who is here, whenever you're listening to this, if you haven't read the book, that's okay. You can listen in. Oftentimes I go to book club and I haven't read the book, but after hearing people talk about it, I'm super interested. So uh, this is Kat's book, a really beautiful cover, uh, Sacred Belonging. And the thing I'm, I'm going to introduce you, Kat, because you deserve to get this. As authors, if you ever get to like actually live through and get a book published, you deserve to hear about it. So Kat Armas is a Cuban-American writer and a podcaster from Miami, Florida. Her first book, Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength, sits at the intersection of women, decolonialism, colonialism, got it, the Bible, and Cuban identity. She, ex she also explores these topics and more on her podcast, The Protagonistas, which centers the voices of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color in theological spaces. 
Kat is currently living outside of Nashville, where she preaches regularly at Grace Point Church. She lives with her spouse, young child, her 10 chickens, three goats, two pigs, two dogs, and a cat. Welcome, Kat. <laughs> thank you so much. I am so happy to be here. Um, and thank you, Shane, for that wonderful introduction and that quote that you quoted. Yes, I always wonder, why is it that <laughs> we think that, you know, those things are more divisive or it's more divisive to talk about those things and think of those things. But anyways, yes, I am so happy to be here and chat about sacred belonging and also Awalita Faith. Yeah, one of, I'm just really grateful for your book as a woman. And there's intersections that put women, I think, at the margins in so many different ways that, like your quote said, it's just not super interesting to be part of a faith that continues to um, oftentimes refuses to call out these things only because it comes off the back of those who are underneath of it and always are bearing the brunt of it. So I loved your very first um, your very first line in this book says, I must admit, I haven't read a devotional in years. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, me too. And right. me, because as somebody who is under some of these, these isms, like it gets to this point where it's like, I'm not, I'm not here for it. And I also don't want to continue to try to ask for someone to see the humanity in um in these things that i think just american christianity oftentimes has demonized um so these are some of the things that you bring up you bring up creation wisdom spirit and the feminine all things that i think uh just traditional christianity was like woo woo you gotta like fear it and like segregate yourself from it and in fact um almost kind of choke it out like make sure it doesn't even get to exist because somehow it's threatening. So I guess I just wanted to ask you, um, where did this start for you about seeing the um, the need to start bringing these things back into, into your faith? Yeah, that's such a great question. And that line, I must admit, I haven't read a devotional in years. I felt it was really important to start my book that way because it's true. You know, it's like, in ways I'm like, was I the best person to write a devotion? I don't read them, but, but no, I really wanted to write a book um, that I wanted to read. Right. I really wanted to write a book that um, I felt like I needed. I, because I've you know, I feel like, as you mentioned, so many, so much of our identities and different parts of who we are have been silenced, or um, in many ways, we are still triggered by a lot of the Christianese and a lot of the ways that um, we have been hurt by, um, yeah, many aspects of the church. I felt like, well, you know, I find so many liberating things in scripture. And because, you know, I've been educated in reading and studying the Bible, I wanted to sort of offer that to folks. I wanted to say, hey, wait a minute, if we really dig deep into scripture, there are there are a lot of liberating things we can find. And so, yeah, I think that that's where that started. And so, and I love how you mentioned that, um, you know, we've demonized and by, by we just a general, you know, Christianity mainstream, right? Um, I say the Christianity of the dominant culture, white evangelicalism, um, yeah, has demonized um, many of the things that so many of, for example, in my culture, right, my Latin American culture, um, so many things that my people in my community have found um, liberating or so many ways that they have engaged with God and engaged with the divine, right? And so in the book, I wanted to, to 
you know, look at these things through the lens of scripture to say, hey, look, these are biblical, right? Like um, the way that God invites God's people to look at the, the, the cycles of the moon or to look to the stars for wisdom or, you know, even the ways that the feminine is found um, when, when God talks about God's self or when God describes um, God's self, right? I wanted to point folks to say, hey, wait a minute, we've demonized and feared these things, but are they really things that maybe um, God, right, has told us to, to fear, or are they things that dominant culture has sort of um, added in, or dominant culture has told us we need to fear, right? I wanted to kind of ease those things apart. Um, yeah, and the way, you know, that we, for example, my first section is on creation, and the ways that we've misused things like have dominion over when it comes to creation. And many folks have, um, you know, used that to mean dominate creation or rule over in a way that is oppressive. And we've, we've seen, how, you know, the effects of that by the way that our environment, you know, the way that our world is treated, the, the state of our world, the state of our planet. And so I want to say, wait a minute, this is what dominant culture has taught us, you know, this might mean, or the way that dominant culture might mistreat um, the natural world. But what is the, you know, what does the Bible really say about that? And so, yeah, I really, that's, that was sort of my goal in this. I wanted to remove a lot of the fear and I wanted to replace it with, Hey, you know, you can use the Bible to oppress and suppress. And the Bible has been used uh, or misused in those ways, but also particularly through, you know, I mean, if you read Awalita Faith, you know, through my culture and my context and my people, the Bible has been used as a tool for liberation and freedom and celebration and joy. And so I wanted um, to center a devotional on, on that. You know, I wanted to center a devotional on the ways that cultures and peoples and um, throughout the world um, have used or have found, you know, these sort of nuggets of, of uh, celebration in scripture. I think it's so, it is a breath of fresh air. I, I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> and I really haven't, like the last devotional I read was Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. And let's just say, like, I read oh, that yeah. sucker for like years. <laughs> yes, um, same. <laughs> so, you know, things have evolved since then. But I think one of the most important things that your book does is it actually takes the voice of God out of the Bible and into the ocean and the trees and into women and into all of these things that have been looked down upon. And it, and it is a straight power structure. <laughs> I'm like, that's the only reason that you would, you would diss certain things is because you didn't want to have to share equality with them. And so I think that not only did you point out that these are all these are all in the sacred scriptures, um, but you gave them their own place in the story. And I think that is such a significant thing to give it, give their voice to these things. And because it's one thing to say it's biblical, but you know, like I have kids, you can't just tell kids like what not to do. You have to tell them who they are and what they can do. And so one of the things that you reference is that the symbolism, the symbolism through many faiths and in, um, in the Bible too, about acknowledging the four directions, that it's actually an honoring thing. And I live on indigenous land, uh, land. I live on Ojibwe territory. And so oftentimes when we gather as a city 
we always have um, have an Ojibwe elder open up the ceremony and with a drum, with a drum circle. And then also he always honors the directions. And I remember feeling like my spirit, like feel this like expansive holiness and honor and beauty of it. But also there's this like part from, I grew up uh, Baptist and like anything that wasn't, you know, like five things we were taught that like we needed to separate ourselves from or protect, protect ourselves, you know, like dinosaurs, Halloween, like anything that wasn't Catholics, like anything that wasn't us. And so I remember feeling the beauty of having the directions honored and welcomed the people to the East and then to the people to the West, Um, just that humility and connection and also a little bit of like, oh, this is okay. Because right. I had to tell myself that because I had been told the opposite. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I think it's so beautiful that you, um, yeah, can engage in those kinds of practices with your community. I think that that's, I mean, that's the dream. That's what we want. And I think that's sort of the heart of sacred belonging, right? That we belong to one another, that we belong to our ancestors. We belong to the earth. Um, we belong to creation. You know, we, we, I, and I wanted us to, to kind of zoom out because, you know, as you mentioned, the Oswald Ch- Chambers devotional, you know, I, I loved it too. But I think, uh, you know, the nature of, of these sort of devotionals is to focus so much on self and there's nothing wrong with self-improvement and growth and, you know, all the things I think we should focus on ourselves, but there's something I think so powerful and so needed in many ways in, in the Christian, you know, in the traditional dominant culture, Christian spaces, you know, where we just need to sort of zoom out and see how we are to this one collective body and community, you know, whose land are we living on? You know, who, who toiled on this land before us, right? Um, the trees. And, and I write about this too, you know, how I moved to a new city and, and I just wanted to know the names of the plants and the animals and, and who was here before me, who took care of this land before me. And I think that there's something um, so holy, as you mentioned, so sacred, about this sort of um, interconnectedness that we have with each other, the land. And so, yeah, and I think the four directions is a beautiful way to think of that. There's so much significance in that in, in indigenous and native communities. But also, again, if you read scripture, I mean, you know, there's verses that say like from the east and to the west and, and you know, and, and God is as close to the north. And, the, you know, I mean, there's just so much of this directional embeddedness. Um, and so much of scripture tells you, I mean, they came from the east and in the west and, you know, all of this stuff, because it, all of it is so again like related interconnected and there's so much relatedness between communities and people and and, um yes and between you know where god is going and where god came from and where god's people are going and where they came from And, and so i thought it was so beautiful to again you know not um, to kind of remove that fear that has been put upon all of these things that m- much of Western culture just doesn't understand and you know sort of invite us to to look at the bigger picture um and I think you 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 know based on this fear thing I think you kind of touched on this in the beginning of what you were saying and I took down notes so if you see me typing I'm like oh that was good I want to go back to that but I think that yeah when it comes to this fear in so much of, of the dominant Christianity there is so much so much resting on being right about everything you think and say about God. There's this obsession with rightness, right? Well, and, and not even right. It's exclusive, right? right. It's yes. if I'm right, y'all got to be wrong. 
Exactly. Yes. No, 100%. And I think that, you know, which is so much why I wrestle so much in, in sacred belonging with this, you know, with, I don't know, or so much with the big, you know, focusing on the bigness of God and focusing so much on what, you know, there's a lot that we learn about God in scripture, but there's so much that it's impossible for us to, to know and fully grasp about God. You know, I, I posted this on social media recently, and I talk about this in one of my reflections, but I love that narrative that, that when Moses, you know, God tells Moses to go, you know, lead these people when Moses is like really frustrated and like, you keep telling me to do this, but who are you going to send with me? How am I supposed to know how I'm supposed to do this? And so he says, you know, show me your glory, right? He just needs some sort of, um, I don't know, something to kind of get him going. And God says, okay. And then he shows him his back, right? And so, you know, we've heard all these things of how, about how, well, if, if God showed him his whole face or his whole glory, it would kill him. And maybe that's true and fine. But also, I love to think that God showed Moses God's back, you know, to kind of keep him wanting more, you know, to keep him interested, to keep, you know, because there's so much about God that we don't know and so much about God that there's still to learn and to know, you know, the more that I learn about the natural world, the more in love I fall, you know, with, with divinity, with, with creator God. And so I, I love to play around with that story and think, you know, what if that was God's way of, of really showing his love to Moses and like, hey, this is just a little bit of my glory. But if you follow me, I'll keep showing you more and more and more of my glory. And I think that that is um, just, you know, kind of removing that fear of, of having to be exclusively, as you said, right. And being okay with, you know, figuring it out as you go along, you know, being okay with not knowing everything right now, but being on a journey, right, um, on, the, on a journey of discovery when it comes um, to to the divine, right? Um, so, yeah. So, and, yeah. and also just going back to this idea of, yeah, God is in all things. And I love how you said that I take the voice of God and this has to do with power structures and I kind of put it in creation. And I think that's it, right? That's part of the whole show me your glory, this revelatory thing, you know, as if we have ears to hear and eyes to see, and if we're expectant and if we're sensitive to the presence of God, I think that, yeah, we can, you know, experience God in, in the four directions. We can experience God in the ocean, in the trees, you know, in our neighbor, especially, right? And I I, I start with creation because I want us to, uh, we, I want us to be attuned to, you know, sort of all of these things, because when we are attuned to discovering God in, in the trees and the ocean, you know, then I think we'll be more attuned to discovering God in our neighbor, right? To discovering God in the quote unquote least in these. Well, I think one of the things that you flip that I think is really subversive about this, and I think it's it's subversive because so much of all the isms that we see that we that you know you started out with the racism and the all of these things they can only exist in power imbalances like that's just the facts <laughs> is that right. if thing mm-hmm. if there wasn't a drastic imbalance of power um these the ways that we harm each other and the ways mm-hmm. that we degrade each other and use each other like we wouldn't have enough power to do that to each other. So I love that you take creation, which at this point in time is just being used and abused um, and even sold in where I live. One of the issues we are tackling is uh, we have water protectors because a company 
wants to buy the water rights and take Uh, water, which is essential for living. And so um, we have indigenous folks called water protectors who are just standing up for the future that says Mm. water is essential for life and life cannot be for sale and you cannot own it and you cannot Mm. deprive people from it. And we refuse um, to let creation be bought like that. Um, So I think getting back to you starting with creation and then taking these ways that we're seeing these huge power imbalances. So um, I'm going to eventually see if you are willing to read um, A Kingdom of Reciprocity. It's your devotional for day seven. Um, But one of the things that you do in here is you talk about um, reciprocity, but you also talk about how Jesus... Jesus talks about the kingdom and he puts it in this parable about a a mustard seed, which only grows up to be a bush. And then it's also about yeast. So I'm going to read this little part for our friends who don't have the book. So you say, Jesus then tells another parable. The kingdom of God is like a little bit of yeast, which a woman took and hid in the wheat until it worked all, all, all the way through. And it says, when folks heard the phrase, the kingdom of God is, they expected to hear about strong men and armies and power. So to hear that the kingdom of God is something like yeast that a woman uses to bake bread, probably for kids, would have sent their minds spiraling, perhaps even offended. When I read that, I was like, that doesn't sound like today, does it? (laughs) You know, when people... When people are, um, they've been raised in a faith and I, I was a soldier and I was raised in a God guns and country faith that God is power and it's going to look like we're, we're going to dominate people. So I think when you said that, and then you're connecting how the kingdom of God, he's putting it with women's work. Right. So I'd love you to talk a little bit about how this is this is taking this imbalance of women's work, which to this day, being a teacher or being a nurse are like the approved women roles. And to date, um, most men won't do them. Not because they're not good jobs, but because. Right. Yeah, they might be weak or, you know, whatever it is that they've been. It's associated with the feminine. Right. Right. And they don't want that. Right. Yeah. No. um, Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think I actually wrote, write a lot about this in Abuelita Faith, about this idea of an imperial dominating, you know, militarized Christ that, um, you know, the dominant Western culture has adopted, right? This warrior God who comes in and just fights and, you know, and so much of that, um, you know, again, is from an interpretation, a colonial, a colonized interpretation um, that has been used and misused to oppress and suppress. And as you know, as you've been talking about these power dynamics. And so, you know, when we're looking at scripture and we read so many of these stories or so many of these parables um, where sort of the kingdom of God is, is, coming forth in the a way, ways that would literally offend, like not just like, 
oh, they're sweet. And no, they're offensive. Like, what do you mean? I mean, the disciples of Jesus ask him, like, who's going to be on your right hand, like in glory? You know, that's what they're interested in. And of course, I mean, it makes sense. You're the one that has been oppressed, right? All of these nations are so much bigger than you. And, you know, all the things like it makes sense why you would think that. Right. And, and Jesus is talking about a kingdom and this is all political language. Right. And so for Jesus to say, oh, it's like yeast that a woman may, you know, like is, is baking or whatever to make bread. I just think that that is um, such a fascinating, I mean, out of all things, that is such a fascinating way to describe the kingdom of God. And in Alanita Faith, I talk about how so much of the Bible, and it kind of connects, you know, obviously to this, but so much of the Bible and so many of the narratives that, that so many of the things that happen in scripture happen because women are in the background doing the thing that God has called them from the beginning to do. Like, for example, I love the story of Tabitha and I write about her in Abuelita Faith, but her story is so incredibly subversive because A, she's first of all, one of the only women in the New Testament to be called a disciple, like a disciple, specifically her, not like men and women called disciples, but she's called a disciple. And then she's one of like the only women in the New Testament, besides, or the only people, excuse me, in the New Testament besides Jesus to be resurrected. So they call, they call on Peter to resurrect this woman, Tabitha, in Acts. And so she, you know, when he gets there and he's wondering, you know, there's this whole chaos around her house because she just died and they want to resurrect her. And we don't know anything about this disciple. We know nothing about why she, out of all people in the New Testament, is being called on to be resurrected, right? Like that is a huge deal. It's still coming out. Like, like you're saying resurrected and, you know, it's like totally Bible lingo. And yes, we've all heard it. But at the same time, right. like, for real, for real. Right. And, right. And what I think is incredible is that we know nothing except the only thing that we get in the story is that there are women, most likely widows, around her bed holding up clothes that she made for them. And to me, this is the most mind blowing, most beautiful detail that I can, that I've, you know, that I've found in the Bible. I mean, obviously there's many, but I'm thinking the clothes that she made, that is what makes her worthy of resurrection. And we know that it's widows because it says widows. And I think what is, is so subversive about that is it just a few chapters earlier, if you remember in Acts, there's this whole debacle between the, the Greek speaking Jews and the widows and they're ignoring the widows. And, you know, and so they have to appoint the seven elders for the, you know, all the things. And here a couple towns later, or a couple towns down, we have Tabitha doing the thing that this whole debacle is about doing the thing, like take care of the widows that God has called God's people to do since the very beginning. And, that was her life. I mean, if you think about it, uh, commentators have called her like an early community organizer because she has organized this entire community, has made clothes, has done done the thing to the point of resurrection, right? Like it is such an incredible. And so I, I think about that, you know, this undoing of power dynamics, you know, like like that whole debacle in Acts, how they have the we're gonna appoint seven men and you know, to to figure this out and to do this thing. And Tabitha's doing it. Like no one had to tell her, no one had to appoint it, you know? Um, and there's so many other stories like that. And I write about them in Awalita Faith, but I think it kind of goes along with this, with what you're saying. It's, you know, um, the women are doing the thing. It's like, she's the one, she is the, the yeast and the bread and the kingdom of God. And, you know, that is overlooked 
right? And it even offends. I mean, just like you said, you know, teachers or nurses or these jobs that are, um, you know, overlooked or these jobs that are kind of pushed aside. I mean, making clothes for the community, right? That can be right along with that. It's an embodied sort of, you know, what I argue in Aulita Faith, an embodied theology. And so, yeah. And so I think that it's so important to kind of highlight these stories and, and kind of, you know, shift our focus and our vision and say, well, wait a minute, you know, everything that we've been told um, by the dominant culture that is, um, that is right, you know, spirituality or Christianity that is tough and masculine and, you know, whatever, um, we see the opposite of that in, right. in the Bible in many ways. And my background um, is definitely militarized and it's militant in the military. It's all about the power structure and it's all about, you know, like nobody wants to be in the bottom. And so what's wild is my faith has definitely made that make sense. <laughs> so the kingdom of God, definitely, you know, you've got the pastor and then, you know, everybody's beneath him and right. all of these power structure stru- structures, right? Um, but it wasn't until I was in war that I felt like I could really hear the God of love who I had learned about say, like, I love the person you've been told is your enemy. Mm, And in that moment, I knew it was true. I knew that her life was my life and we Mm. were connected. And this was the truest true that I knew that whatever I had signed up to do and whatever my faith had told me was righteous and powerful. um, That paled in comparison to this Mm. truth that we are connected, that God had created her and created me. And we were in this together. And so Mm, something that you say here is you say that this is the power that the kingdom of God holds, a power rooted in reciprocity. Let the earth grow plant life, says Genesis 1. And it's all about systems of fertility and fruitfulness that provide for all. It's mutual flourishing. That is why all things, not just fellow humans, which I did learn about, (laughs) But the earth and all her inhabitants should be seen as neighbor and kin. When you look at all created things with a sense of mutuality and openness to give and receive, we participate in the sacred. Yes. And I think that, um, I, you know, I love what you shared. And I think that's that's so powerful. And I think that that is, you know, sort of this, the, the root of undoing these power dynamics. Really, it is reciprocity and mutuality. And I think like I mentioned, it starts with our relationship to creation. I think if, if we can't humble ourselves to see, you know, and, and I say the least of these as in, you know, the bugs, the birds, the whatever, if we can't humble ourselves to find a kinship um, with the created world, then I think it's going to be really hard to do so with our marginalized neighbor. I think that this goes hand in hand. And, you know, I, I feel like so much of you know, the faith of the dominant culture has really disconnected and caused a chasm between so many parts of of life of ourselves, you know, mind and body and, um, right, like us and them. And there's so many, um, the righteous and the sinful, you're right, there's so many divisions in so many ways. And I think that there is something liberating, healing, and also I think at the root of, 
really um, loving our neighbor as ourself in seeing this reciprocity, this mutuality, this interconnectedness that we have with each other, with the natural world. And I think also, you know, I, I write about this in Sacred Belonging, and I also write about this in Awalita Faith, but I think that, you know, this idea in, in the Christian tradition, right? Hospitality is like a virtue that is, you know, it's so important to give and to serve and, and to, you know, um, host, right? To, to set the table for others. And that's not bad. It's not a bad thing to be hospitable, of course. And it's not a bad thing to serve and to host, but, but it, it can become a, a form of charity, right? Or B, it can become a form of like self-righteousness. And, and so I think that there's something Christ-like, for lack of a better word, when we're not just those that are hosting and serving and giving, but when we are allow ourselves to be served and loved, and when we you know allow ourselves to receive um, from the quote unquote least of these, from the marginalized, from you know creation. You know, I, I wrote about this recently, but I there's something changes in you when you feel creation loving you back. Not just when you love creation, but when you you can receive that love back from the natural world. And I think the same thing when it comes to our neighbor. I think there's one thing to set the table and to be the host. And, you know, in, in my book, Abuelita Faith, I talk about how my grandmother, you know, an immigrant and, you know, a, a, a immigrant Cuban woman, um, and she was always a host of her table. Like she set the table and everyone would come and be served and loved by her, right? And I think that is a form of mutuality and reciprocity where we don't, you know, like as you mentioned, you know, the hierarchy, I think that removes the power structures from the hierarchy. And, you know, those, the, the, the so-called top of the, you know, whatever, um, when they can sit and be guests, that unfamiliar table would receive love and be loved and receive a mutuality. I think there's something really powerful about that. Um, and also with creation, I, it's, it's a beautiful thing when I can recognize and, and sit in humility at the way that the creation loves me back, right? I'm not just the one doing the loving. I'm, I can also receive that love. And I think that there is something mm. yeah, really powerful about I that. I think it, it's transforming relationships and just ideas and just something to remind everybody who's watching this. Um, as Kat and I talk, please, uh, you can drop your questions for Kat um, in the comments, and we are going to do a little Q&A at the end. So um, please drop your questions, <clears throat> excuse me, and drop your, it can be from her first book, second book, nothing to do with the book, just super want to ask Kat um, a theology question since we have a theologian with us today. Um but I do, so please drop those in there. We will definitely get to them. Um, but thank you for just connecting some of those things. I think there's a humility to it that we oftentimes miss when we're, we're not on the receiving end in that way. So I just, yeah. I mean, there's so many different parts of it, but I also think one of the lightning rods that I love that you take on is you call it the feminine. And I don't know if that is like to not raise the hackles of, if you, you know, if you say feminism, I think that word has many different reasons for people. You know, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, but you bring up the feminine and also wisdom. So I guess I, when I was reading, I just really wanted to ask you about how bringing up some of these things that has been um, demeaned and just not denied like their validity 
in being part of the Christian tradition and just existing as a positive, um, how has that impacted your work for justice or the way that you can put Jesus on display in action? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, yeah, so I think, and I can kind of talk a little bit about the feminine and, and why I wanted to even write about that and how I think that that, why I think that that matters. And so, you know, as I was, a lot of this book is written from a, a decolonial perspective. And so a lot of this is written um, with the the thought of empire, right? The idea of empire in the back of my mind. Why? Because, well, I mean, the Bible, the New Testament was written under the, you know, sort of the veil of the Roman Empire. Um, you know, many argue that we are under an American empire, at least as sort of imperialism. And I think that it's important because of the images and the characteristics that we are told um, or that we are given or that we are, or that are sort of sold to us. And so as I was doing my research, um, I found so many fascinating things and so many connections between um the, the way that the feminine is characterized in the Bible. And so, for example, um, women uh, in the Bible or the feminine, really, I would say the feminine in scripture is anything that is fleshly or carnal or anything that is subjective or anything that is, um, yeah, just having to do with the body in a oh, lust in a lustful way, right? And I found so many incredible connections in regard to empire in the way that that nature. And so I actually bookend the feminine section with ecofeminism or eco womanism, talking about the way that nature and women have been sort of characterized in exactly the same ways: lustful, carnal, fleshly, um, and even you know um, one of these stories. The story was stood out to me so much um, it, in the Roman world. This is a really interesting thing that I learned. But in the Roman world, men, the the male, the masculine, was seen as. Um, uh, hard and robust and like, you know, you think of like porcelain like and um hot, right? It was something like very unpermeable, right? And the feminine was seen as like porous and just very soft and you know cushiony, right? Like not and so these are legitimate ways that like bodies were understood in, in the in the Roman world. And so, and also like, this is a random one, but women were understood as like leaky, like, you know, they would like just leaking and just, you know, kind of like, yeah, it was really, really interesting. And the reason why this stood out uh, to can me- I, Can I, can I stop you here? That doesn't yeah. sound nice. I don't get right. it. Right. You know, right. nobody has bizarre. A, nobody like gets to choose whether you're born or if you're right. born in a- right what kind of right. body you get. No. But I was like, you right. know, none of those things, like, that's not what anybody would want to say. Me, me, pick me. Right. I, I would like one of those <laughs> bodies to be characterized. Right. That way. No, it's super bizarre, but I think, and here's why, and, and I'll get to the, my point of why I think it's important to talk about this or why it's important to bring this up because this, this, this sort of way of thinking has been, I mean, it's been underneath or, or just kind of permeated the way that we understand the natural world, the way that we understand. I mean, when I talked about earlier about this notion of dominion or domination, um, there is a, 
there is a very unique connection between the domination of women and the domination of nature, right? The carnal, the fleshly, you got to dominate the flesh. You got to dominate all of these things. And this has carried through throughout the centuries. And so when I talk about, you know, the way that women's bodies were characterized and the way that are understood. And when I talk about the feminine, I mean, this is what I want us to think about, like these really bizarre ways of thinking that if you, I mean, if you really dig deep, it's, still carries forth today in a way that people are characterized and understood. I mean, it's, it's really, really weird stuff, but it's a very um, prominent in a lot of like the way that we understand ourselves. Right. And so I'm thinking about, and, and I write about this in the feminine section about the, the woman um, who is bleeding for 12 years. Right. And I'm thinking about the ways that her body is the, the ideal, like feminine body, right? She's literally leaking blood and she's just the marginalized of the marginalized. I mean, she is, they try to like get her away out of the way, like leave him alone when she tries to like get uh, um, Jesus's attention. I mean, this is your, when you think of in the Roman world, a body that you want nothing to do with, it is this woman's body, right? It is this woman's, and it's not just her body you know, because she has an ailment as they think, you know, in the story, but it's because she is the ideal feminine body. And then, you know, as I'm, I'm doing the research on this and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the ways that actually her body and Jesus's body at the end of, of Jesus' story end up being very similar. Like Jesus also leaks blood when he dies and Jesus's body also is pierced with holes and it's porous. And, and I'm making these connections and I'm saying, wait a minute, you know, in our world, the feminine is so, um, look down upon and, and the feminine in our world and in the Roman world. And by the feminine, I mean the, the things that have been attached to it, right? The, the ideologies that have been attached to it, but Jesus in this story becomes the very body that is despised in the Roman world, leaky, porous, you know, all the things. And I'm thinking, you know, that is in, in a beautiful subversive way. That is Jesus taking on the feminine, which is despised and hated. And, and so I'm finding all of these connections of, wait a minute, Jesus wasn't, um, Jesus wasn't threatened by appearing feminine. Jesus wasn't threatened by appearing leaky or porous or wet or all of these just things that um, men did not, or men were not like in the, in the ancient world. Right. Um, And I think that, you know, to kind of a long way to answer your question, I think that this does draw, you know, paint Jesus in a new light because Jesus is now embodying the very things that, that the, the, um, the powerful in society want nothing to do with. Jesus is taking this on. And in that there is power, not a power over, but a power with, and there is a, a liberation and a freedom. And so I thought that was really important to kind of, you know, um, draw that out in scripture and say, Hey, there's nothing um, to despise about the qualities that it, the, the qualities that the, the dominant culture might say are not good enough when Jesus, you know, himself took those on. I think one important thing you said there is that Jesus was offensive in his death. Uh, He was despised. Um, Right. Good people, good religious folks wanted nothing to do with him. And I think too often we forget that I think that Jesus chose to be represent. He chose to be 
an right. innocent executed by the state person. So every time we want to come near to Christ, we have to come near <clears throat> to someone who is sentenced to die. We have to come near to someone with a body who is leaking and offensive. And I think we have to come near to, to a Jesus who disarmed himself, who refused mm-hmm. to take up violence. Um, right. So yes. I, I think so much of what you're doing is putting life back in to um, back into this person that people say they're about. So I am going to invite Shane to uh, come on and hey, I know he's got he's got a few things he's chomping at the bit to say. Um, and we've got probably a few questions, too. But well, Shane, welcome. I've mostly really, really loved just uh, listening in. A lot of times I'm uh, doing what Diana's doing. You're doing such a great job, uh, Diana, just creating a good conversation. I was thinking, Kat, though, um, you know, you you write about this. And I've heard a few other folks say it in, 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 you know, kind of a myriad of ways. But Jesus is not only showing us what God is like. Jesus is also showing us how to be human, right? How to have holy anger, how to have compassion and weep when we need to weep. Um, and I mean, that that's one of the things I hear, you know, in, in your in your speaking and writing. And the other thing I was thinking of was a conversation I had with some, um, I found myself in a womanist conversation uh, some time ago. And, um, and folks were reflecting on, is it still difficult to reconcile you know the savior being a male and um and i'll never forget what um one of the women said she said well if god if the savior had come as a female some of us um that might make more sense because a lot of us we had loving mothers we had loving uh, abuelitas you know we and but to come to also redeem that part which a lot of folks don't have much positive experience with their fathers or with males. And um, so it's even redeeming, you know, all of humanity uh, to us. So, uh, you know, I just, I was thinking of that as I'm listening to you. It's interesting that you should say that, Shane, because um, I have a pen pal and he's on death row and he was telling me, you know, just in his processing, um, he's like, I think, I think there's something messed up about men (laughs) he's like fundamentally i think there's something that is wrong with us and my heart just broke because i thought no like we are we're children of god full stop you know and um and so i think that's interesting that you say that jesus coming as a male to redeem and even to show um to men most often the perpetrators of mass death, violence, and destruction, a new way to be a human. I think that's really powerful. I didn't think about it till you said it, Shane. Yeah, I think that that's beautiful. And I think, you know, this idea of Jesus being human and not being afraid to take on qualities or things that, um, yeah, may have been looked down upon or just by, by you know, the dominant culture. I, I think of you know, just the story and and it's a common story, but if you really think about it, it is also so subversive. I think the story of when Lazarus dies and they call on Jesus to come and, and resurrect him. And 
you know, Jesus gets there, you know, it's like the famous, like Jesus wept, right? The famous verse, but, um, you know, it really gets to me because he knew that, that Lazarus was going to be re- like, he knew he was going to resurrect him. Like he knew he would be alive. But when Mary comes up to him and she's just like, she's angry at him. She's like, why weren't you here? Like, you, you know, he died. Like wh- what took you so long? And she's crying and he just cries with her. Like he cries with her, you know, he didn't, spiritualize it. He didn't say like, no, it's fine. He's going to be resident. You know, like he wept with her, you know? And I think that in that moment, that's just what she needed. And that was the right response to death. Right. I mean, a brother, a son, a a husband, you know, a friend is dead. And the only response in that moment is to cry. And I love that about Jesus. I mean, it was very present. You know, it was very human. It was very, and again, it's taking on these qualities and these characteristics of humanity that, you know, like weakness and what we, you know, we talked about empire and, and hierarchy and strength and dominance. And the fact that, you know, the, the most powerful man, you know, powerful, whatever, you, <laughs> obviously he was killed by the state, but you know what I mean? I mean, God, God's self would just sit there and cry, you know, because something was worthy of crying over. Um, yeah, I think that there's something really just subversive and powerful about that. I, I was also thinking for folks that, you know, it, it's it's kind of a stretch to think of God outside of our traditional uh, conceptions of male. I mean, I, I know that I, I noticed that you're using uh, gender, uh, neutral or you know not using gendered language for god and i i've i've tried to do that partly because i just i i see god as transcending that you know and there's certainly this power of um you know father spirit son mother protecting her hands the you know the breasted uh, el shaddai is kind of the, you know this all these images of god and i kind of think of, i think it was lauren winter that said you think of all the churches or every town has a church of the good shepherd but who's ever seen the church of the mother hen maybe we need uh, you know like but but you know for some folks this is a real stretch and it doesn't feel natural to it's still you know, I, I can even remember in college arguing with one of my professors. Well, God, you know, Jesus called God Abba, Father, um, and and so you know, how how can people kind of stretch themselves maybe a little bit other than reading your books? And I think a part of it for me is reading folks outside of male theologians and writers. But um, you got any other thoughts? Yeah. Um, well. I think something that I was told or or something that kind of helped me think through this, um, a professor of mine in seminary, you know, we know that the Bible is written in a specific context and a specific culture. And, you know, obviously we understand that, you know, and when we talk, when we hear folks talk about God in the Bible, God is talked about as things that pertain to that culture, like a rock, you know, I mean, for us, it might be God is a rock. I mean, yeah, we can understand what that means, but like rocks don't carry the same sort of value in our world as they did back then. I mean, rocks protected people and rocks were used to build things and home, you know what I mean? And so um, also God is spoken of as a warrior in scripture. I mean, we can't pretend that God isn't spoken of as a warrior in scripture. And that's because, you know, the, the world of the Bible was a world of a lot of warfare. Um, not that ours isn't now, but I think that th- this is the imagery that folks, you know, they drew from what they had. Right. And so I think in the same way, when we think of, um, you know, now in our world, when we talk about God, we can say, we, I think 
because the Bible, um, you know, when we're allowed to, or not we're allowed to, I mean, we have no choice, but when we read it in our context to try and make sense of it and how we understand the world, I think it's in the same way, you know, um, to think of God um, as a mother in many ways, you know, the, the world of the Bible was a world, a patriarchal world. And by patriarchy, I literally mean rule of the father, right? I mean, things were passed down through the father's line. I mean, this was just a very um, political sort of way of being. Now our context is a little different, right? We don't necessarily have, there's still definitely patriarchy, but just in the, in the different, there's, there's no bride prices or things like that in our current uh, context, right? Um, and so I think that, you know, when we think of the world that we live in, how can we relate to God in our current context and culture? And I think, um, you know, women in our day, um, yeah, the way that women are leaders in our world, right? Um, you know, obviously we want a lot more um, ways that we can see women in more leadership positions, but um, women are pastoring, you know, at the end of the day, women are leading um, organizations. And so I think that, um, you know, it's safe to, to kind of invite our current context and the way that we see our world and, and sort of see God in those kinds of ways too, you know, mirrored in those ways, just like, you know, people can call God a rock or a lion, right? I mean, we live in, a lot of us see lions in zoos behind cages. And so we may not understand, you know, what God is a lion really, you know, um, means in our world when folks really, you know, when they were living, you know, in places where they could really come in contact with a lion, you know what I mean? So I think it, it, um, it, it just depends. It's just, it's the same way that we um, are kind of free to allow ourselves to see God in the world around us, I think in the same way. And so, yeah, I mean, God is a mother hen. Um, I have 10 chickens. And so I understand what that means, you know, my particular context, but I think it's similar. I found it useful, you know, Shane, when you're talking about like how to just like envision God as bigger than the box that we that we were raised with that feels comfortable that just you know makes sense like if you go to a different church and hear people do the lord's prayer i'm telling you that's when the these and thighs comes out because that's just how people learned it um what's helpful to me to stretch me is to um talk to god as a parent because people a parent is someone who cares for you who is for you and people that's undeniable and that is across it doesn't matter if it was a mom or a dad, a grandparent, a neighbor, like people, I think of God makes the most sense to me as a good parent. Mm. Um, and that, that includes everything, you know, well, and yeah, doesn't I, stop with one, one pronoun. I, you know, I think one of the, the I, I, I really appreciate Kat, how you like uh, challenge us to, um, ask the right questions. And I, I mean, I find a lot of young people when I was saying, I'm not looking for uh, someone to answer my questions. I'm looking for somebody that'll question the answers, you know, that were given to me that aren't really working. And I, I you know, as, as I think of um, uh, the, the, the one thing that I, I there's so, several things I think we can say definitively about God, but one of them is that God is love. And so wherever you felt love, you've seen God. I mean, it's exactly what scripture says, right? So if you felt love, from your grandmother, you know, if you feel love from your child, if you feel love from a pastor, uh, like, but, and wherever you haven't felt love, that wasn't God, right? So I think that it's it kind of human relationships at their best can give us an, uh, a glimpse of how God loves us. And, and so it, it defies, you know, those categories is kind of wherever love is, God is, right? 
whenever, you know, I'm just so grateful for your work. And before we go to Kat, we want to make sure that we hear how people can follow you, you know, on socials or, you know, Substack or whatever you're on. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you can go to my website, katarmas.com and there you can find a link to, yeah, my Substack if you want to just receive some newsletters and also in uh, Twitter and uh, Instagram, it's cat underscore Armas, A-R-M-A-S. I'll send us out um, with uh, this, with, with one of your, your lines here. This is a uh, cat's uh, uh, quote. Next time someone tries to silence your cries for justice, remind them of the time Jesus encouraged his followers to be like a persistent widow who wouldn't leave a judge alone, but demanded that he grant her justice against her adversary. So have uh, that widow's persistent and defiant uh, uh, resistance to the the stubbornness uh, of our culture and of the powers that be. And on that note, may we all go in peace. Thank you, Kat. Thanks for being here. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.